Shopify grows your business no matter how far or big you grow. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Whether you're selling your fans' next favorite shirt or an exclusive piece of podcast merch, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash income, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash income now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Hey everyone, it's Cam Hurt, host of the Best Show Ever podcast, and we have got a second season coming out very soon that I am very excited about. We've got some very cool special guests, including musical acts that we all love, like Karina Reichman, Daniel Donato, Jake Brownstein from Eggy, Rick and Peter from Goose, and many more. Tune in for new episodes dropping on Osiris Media March 5th on the Best Show Ever podcast. From the gas pump to the grocery store. Inflation is everywhere. Seriously, make it stop. Thankfully, there's one company out there that's giving you a much-needed break. It's Mint Mobile. As the first company to sell premium wireless service online only, Mint Mobile lets you order from home and save a ton with phone plans starting at just $15 a month. All plans come with unlimited talk and text, plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. To get your new wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, and get the plan shipped to your door for free. Go to mintmobile.com slash switch. That's mintmobile.com slash switch. Today I want to tell you about a brand new podcast that I'm really loving. It's called 27 Club, and it's hosted by Jake Brennan, the creator and host of Disgraceland, and iHeartRadio's 2020 Best Music Podcast winner, 27 Club tells the stories of musical icons who all died at the age of 27, and season one is all about Jimi Hendrix. Jimi died mysteriously at the age of 27, and he lived his life unlike any other. He was arguably the greatest rock and roll guitar player of all time, and he was a busy guy. Busy getting kidnapped, busy running from the mafia, busy stealing trucks with Neil Young, trying to get to Woodstock on time. Jimi got busy with himself and got himself kicked out of the army. He was fired by Little Richard, arrested by Seattle cops and Canadian Mounties, doused with LSD by his manager on stage in front of thousands, and haunted by the ghost of the Rolling Stones' Brian Jones. All of these Jimi Hendrix stories and more are coming at you in Season 1 of The 27 Club. If you like Disgraceland, Jimi Hendrix, larger-than-life rock stars, or just plain old mystery and drama, then you're going to love The 27 Club. Subscribe to The 27 Club on the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Did you know that music can accelerate child brain development and strengthen intellectual, emotional, and motor skills, as well as overall literacy? 
Bringing music into the classroom can help kids explore the mind-body connection and become comfortable with self-expression. Sadly, many children's music programs are lacking in the resources they need to let kids explore this creative space. That's why Osiris is happy to partner with the Mockingbird Foundation. Founded in 1996, the Mockingbird Foundation is a volunteer-run nonprofit organization dedicated to improving access to music education for America's youth. Each year, the foundation awards grants to dozens of music education programs and funds those grants through a combination of fundraising, publishing, and the curation of Fish.net, one of the earliest internet fan communities. Mockingbird is entirely volunteer with no staff, no salaries, and no office. So every dollar really does make a difference in providing children's music programs with the staffing, instruments, and support they need. The foundation gets over $150,000 each year in grants. To donate or to learn more, visit mbird.org. That's M-B-I-R-D.org. What are you drinking right now? Are so, you drinking anything interesting? Yeah, today I picked up a Salamoth beer. Salamoth is a brewery in Naperville, Illinois. And uh, I'm drinking their street photographer, Pale Ale. Are you really? Yes. See, okay, I, I'm totally unprepared for this. I'm drinking coffee and water right now. Well, uh, I, don't, I don't have any... I don't have anything cool. We're going to, to after that, that uh, the the big coffee and water industry <laughs> advertisement. <laughs> this is thirty six from the vault. Uh, I'm Stephen Hyden. I'm Rob Mitchum. And this is the podcast where we listen to uh, a different Dick's Picks record in every episode. Dick's Picks, of course, being the series of live records that were put up by the Grateful Dead starting in the mid-90s up through the mid-2000s. And today we're going to be doing Volume 2, which is a show recorded on October 31st, 1971 at the Ohio Theater in Columbus, Ohio. And this is going to be an interesting episode because this is by far the shortest album in the Dick's Pick series. It's only about 58 minutes long. And I feel like we're going to easily jam longer talking about this record than the record itself. Yeah, which I think is going to be pretty incredible. That's right. This is the runt of the litter. It's, I, I believe, the only <laughs> single disc Dick's Picks. Yes. And, uh, yeah, just uh, lean and mean. Severely edited. Well, yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, at least it's uh, chronological, unlike the last one. Like, he just picked out the second set and said, here you go. Thank you. 
So let's talk about the progression of the series a bit. Now, the the first Dick's Picks volume, that came out in 1993. That's right. And then this record, this record came out in 95. Yeah, so almost a year and a half. I think it's December 93 to March 95 when volume two came out. And like... There was like quite a bit of deliberation in that time, trying to figure out like what this was going to be, right? I mean, like because there were several shows in the like in the running for Volume Two that ended up coming out later in the series. But I mean, does that account for the delay in releases? Because like after this, I, f- I feel like they came out at a steadier clip than they did at the beginning. Right. Yeah, I think so. There's there's two reasons for that. One is. Named Phil Lesh. Uh, we talked about this a little bit last episode. Uh, the, the band had to approve everything that came out or everything that Dick selected for his series. Uh, uh, in, though in truth and practice, it was really only Phil that had any sort of interest in you know, uh, approving or vetoing Dick's choices. So uh, it seemed like from interviews, if you read interviews with Dick from around that time, Phil basically shot down everything he brought to the table. He wanted to release some pretty famous shows. He wanted to put out uh, like the the rest of the Fillmore show from February 13th, 1970, which was released kind of weirdly as Bear's Choice, where they just took like acoustic and pig pen songs. But there was a lot of other great stuff. Uh, he wanted to release the Harper College show from 1970, which is a pretty famous and very long dead show with acoustic and electric sets. There was like a 77 show, a 72 show, like all a, a whole bunch of things he brought to the table, apparently. And Phil pretty much just said no to all of them. And those first two that you mentioned, the, the 21370 and the Harper College show, those did come out eventually as part of the Dick's Pick series. 21370 is volume four. And I'm and, and like 21370, that's like one of the most famous Grateful Dead shows ever. Yeah, absolutely. And I think like, so Dick early on, a big thing for him was to not necessarily put out the most famous Dead shows, but to put out shows that people maybe hadn't heard. And I think the idea, we'll talk about this when we get to volume four, was that People thought they knew what happened on February 13th, 1970, but had only gotten this weird sort of half glimpse of it. Uh, so he had he had pushed that one to the front of the line. Um, but yeah, we'll, we'll get into it with today's show. But he, he wanted to find shows that maybe weren't in circulation or weren't well known among deadheads and get them out as well. Um, but yeah, apparently Phil, as we talked about last episode, you know, he cut a bass solo out of volume one. He was real persnickety about these things, very much the micromanager of the Grateful Dead. Uh, and it just took a long time for Dick to find one that, that met his very high approval. Now, pretty soon we'll get to the, uh, sort of, you know, faster pace of Dick's Picks releases. And I think the two things that happened there were one, Phil finally got the message and stopped you know, standing in the way of these things coming out. Uh, and two, Jerry Garcia died. And the Grateful Dead suddenly were faced with a uh, less steady flow of income from the Grateful Dead being on the road. I mean, do you know why they ended up agreeing to put out this show? I mean, because, again, they had rejected some very famous, well-regarded shows. Like, what was it about this show in particular that made it okay to put it out as volume two? Yeah, I couldn't find anything about why it sort of passed their high standards. I found, you know, a couple quotes from Dick about why he wanted to put out this show. Uh, I think part of it is, like, it was an extremely under-the-radar show uh, that wasn't really floating around. 
So maybe they just thought like this is this is one that was worthwhile putting out into the community, whereas the other ones that you know the tapes were kind of there, if you could if you wanted to if you if if you looked out for them hard enough. Uh, whereas this was like a, a totally sort of unheard gem, according to Dick. And because the idea again like was, you know, like in to not maybe put out 21370 the idea was being like well if you were already a serious dead collector you probably already had that show but like this show you might not have had or you might not have had like at least this part of it because again they were only going to release like the second set of it right i mean i mean because i mean because i know you dug out some other stuff too about like i mean what was it about this thing because obviously and we're going to get into this there's a lot of this show that they didn't put out. And actually, I think it's like a really great show overall. But like, again, like the entire first set isn't in the Dick's Picks release. And it's like a monster first set. It's like 15 songs, like I think are in that first set or or thereabouts. Um, do you know what the thinking was as far as like just wanting to put out the second set? Yeah, I don't know. I think, um, well, first of all, I think... It, it wasn't that much longer of a first set than a lot of first sets of the era. I think they kind of played the weirder thing from their set from this set list is how short the second set is. Like the fact that they were able to fit an entire set on one disc uh, was I think kind of unusual for the dead in the early seventies. Um, the first set, I don't know. I feel like I definitely feel like Dick as a, as a dead fan was very much like a jam chaser. And I think a lot of the early Dick's picks that are abridged kind of show that off where he'll, he'll pick a few of the shorter songs, but if he's going to pick something, it's, it tends to be the really long, deep improvisational excursions. So I think there's a little bit of like the first set of this show, like it's, it's good. It's just like good, like solid early seventies dead. Uh, but there's nothing that really like jumps out, especially to somebody like Dick who would listen to you know show after show after show. Uh, it, it, you know, it's a lot of material that is still in its early days. A lot of songs that had debuted earlier that year or you know the year before, and songs that would kind of you know reach their full bloom in sort of the Europe '72 time period and from then on. And I, you know everything's played a little slow and a little ragged, and I think maybe. That was one of the things that maybe Phil was resistant to, uh, whereas the second set is like some, you know, good, but just one big, you know, solid Grateful Dead suite of music that they had been playing for quite a while and were obviously very good at playing in 1971. Well, and it seems like, too, that this uh, release is, is set up to spotlight the Dark Star in the second set. You know, like that, like the Dark Star is about half of the record like by itself it's like a pretty well-regarded dark star and we'll and we'll we'll talk about that more later in the episode but uh because like when because you know there's quotes from dick kind of enthusiastic like talking very enthusiastically about this show and like how mind-blowing it was and it seems like that's what that's like what a lot of the conversation is about right like the dark star on this record yeah yeah and I want to read this quote. I wish I had. I, I have no idea what Dick Lavalla actually sounded like, so I can't even hazard an impression. But this quote is like, so this is the official archivist of the Grateful Dead. And his quote about this show sounds like 
basically like you know the top comment on an archive.org like streaming page he said when he found it he said i'm absolutely thrilled i can't believe that anyone who hears this is not going to go to outer space intensely over and over (laughs) this show was like getting hit with a brick in the face i couldn't believe it i put it on again and said man i must have played it 10 times before i could talk this is as good as it's ever been i've never heard anything like it and i'm shocked i have to put it myself in a seatbelt. I start shaking. It's so exciting. This is a thrill a minute. And <laughs> so he liked he liked this show. He did, and I think it's fair to say that he might be overselling it slightly with that. Like I would, yeah. I, I was definitely able to talk after hearing this show. But <laughs> there's some fine highlights to, that we're going to get into later in the show. But let's set the context here a little bit. So the dead, they they play this show. It, it, it's Halloween. It's Columbus, Ohio. They're playing at the uh, at the at the Ohio Theater, and this was the third show that the Dead ever played in Columbus. They had played there in '68 and in '70, and then after this, they played three more shows um, in '72, '76, and '78. This is the f- only show that they ever played at the Ohio Theater. And I was reading about the Ohio Theater. I've never been to Colum- Have you ever been to Columbus before? I've never been there. It's one of the great college. Yeah, a couple times. It's one of the great college towns in America. And I've seen. Uh, so since I went to college in Ann Arbor, uh, I did make it down to Columbus for a couple shows into enemy college sports turf, uh, and like two very different shows that pretty much summarize what I listened to in college. I saw Fish in. Uh, July of 1999, the show where uh, Trey announced from the stage that they'd be playing New Year's Eve in Florida. Ah. Very topical right now on the 20th anniversary. Uh, well, and that was a great show. It'll be Some beyond. Some of the best fish seats I've ever had. We're recording this before the 20th anniversary of Big Cypress. By the time this airs, we'll, we'll, we'll be past it. But uh, yes, uh, Big Cypress is definitely at the top of mind as we're recording this right now. Uh, for fish right and we can put in like an extremely tardy plug for fellow osiris podcast after midnight jesse jarno's history of the big cypress festival yes which, uh odds are everybody listening to this has probably already heard but, but hey if but you if you haven't, haven't yeah evergreen content always good to go back and and, and get your history lesson there so what was the other show that you saw in columbus uh the other show i saw was like it wasn't a house show but it was like a rec center and it was uh hey mercedes the offshoot <laughs> band from Braid and Rainer Maria. Oh, wow. So, uh, I don't know if our mutual friend Ian Cohen will ever listen to this podcast. I'm guessing not. No but, way. Uh, not a chance he, in hell. If he does, he would be nodding approvingly at my emo cred of going to Columbus to see uh, two of the greats, two of the late 90s emo greats. So the Ohio Theater... It sounds like a really cool venue. It was uh, it was built in 1928. It was a movie theater, and you know, it has, it, it look, I've seen pictures of it. It looks like a very grand old theater. Um, by the late 60s, it was earmarked for demolition, but fortunately, someone stepped in to renovate it, and it became a rock venue after that. And in and in the early 70s, along with booking the Grateful Dead. Frank Zappa played there. Alice Cooper played there. Um, over time, it's become more of a performing arts center. I, I looked at some of the recent performers that have been there, including uh, the Goo Goo Dolls, are the most recent rock band to play the Ohio Theater. Uh, Dweezil Zappa is playing there in the spring of 2020. Also, Newt Gingrich 
uh, was recently there. Uh, so I'm sure he rocked. Oh. I'm sure he rocked the Ohio Theater. Uh, so you that know, hot Gingrich so, tour. Yeah, yeah. I love that 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 the Dead and Gingrich both played this venue. I think it's that, that that's really great. Um, so they they play this they they play this show. It it was their tenth show with Keith Godshow coming in. His first show with the Dead was earlier this month on October nineteenth, and like Pigpen like was still in the picture but he was not well at this time and, and he wasn't playing on this tour i think he was sick right yeah i don't know it was like right before they were gonna leave on this tour that he started his liver problems started and uh kind of last minute they had to like swap him out and call up keith who like sort of seemed like he was just like right place right time <laughs> right. <laughs> to join the dead like it's it's sort of hazy on the details like how he was the guy they went to because they were you know of course playing with a lot of keyboardists uh, at the time and this guy you know he wasn't really a big name or anything and they just kind of pulled him out they stuck him in rehearsals in like late september i think and then he was on the sh- on the road like two days later uh just keith though no donna and no donna yet well i was gonna say like you know, Donna didn't actually debut with the Dead until later on in '71. The New Year's Eve show was her first show with the Dead. But again, you know, we right. talked about this in our previous episode, talking about Volume One, the show from '73. That would have been a time where Donna normally would have been with the band, but uh, she was out for a period when that show was taken from. It's interesting. This the second show in a row where Donna does not show up, and I feel like that's probably yeah. not a coincidence on Dick's part. <laughs> once, once again, the anti-Donna bias comes out. Release the <laughs> Donna show, you cowards! But it's yeah, I mean, it's weird. It's it's a really weird lineup because like not only is Keith like brand new, uh, but particularly on the Dick's picks uh, mix. He is barely audible. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it took me like I had to do like a very loud, unhealthily loud headphones listen to even notice like that he was playing in this set. If you listen to the the tape of the first set that you can find on Relisten or on Archive or your your streaming platform of choice, he's actually very loud at the start. There's even somebody in the art in the comments I saw that said, like, thank God they turned Keith down because he was like <laughs> dominating the mix. Um but yeah, I think there are songs where I think it's partially like the sound crew keeping them very low in the mix intentionally. And remember, these Dix Picks recordings are like the two track right off the board. So th- you you couldn't mix them higher if you wanted to. You kind of just have to go with like what the sound guy on that particular date was doing. Um, but he uh, kind of like even when you can hear him on the first set songs, I feel like he just kind of sits some songs out. Like, which makes sense if he was just thrown on tour last minute. Like, maybe he didn't get to learn the entire Dead catalog yet. So he's just, like, either barely playing or just, like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wait for the next song. And so what you get is an extremely rare case of four-piece Grateful Dead. Like, there's basically no other time in their history that you can hear them as a four-piece. Well, yeah, because, again, like, Mickey left the band earlier that year. So, like, they were sort of relatively new as like a one drummer band at, at, at this point in 71 yeah yeah it, it's hilarious to me that someone would comment that keith is too loud like that he's too high in the mix because that would be an exceedingly rare 
complaint to make about yeah. like a Grateful Dead live recording. I'm always of the opinion that like I always wish Keith was louder. Like I wish I I always wish the piano was more prominent uh, on Dead live recordings because I mean Keith's a great player. And especially like in the early '70s, before sort of like his drug addiction really set in and kind of like numbed his playing, like he was doing a lot of great things. But he's never very prominent in the mix. And I don't know if just if it's just because people love Jerry so much that they, like they didn't want Jerry to be upstage by the piano player. But like it's like <laughs> man, I wish there was more piano. Maybe that's like yeah. me as a Fish fan coming into the Dead. And piano is obviously very prominent in Fish, and I always wish it was more prominent in The Dead. But yeah, you cannot yeah. hear him really at all. You can hear, as you said, you can hear him more in the first set. I feel like you can kind of hear him like during the like not fade away, going down the road, feeling bad part a little more. But like during the Dark Star, yeah. he's non-existent. I, I don't know if he played on that. Yeah. It just wasn't turned up. I made a note uh, earlier today. I finally heard him. I made a note of it. It was so remarkable that I was like, oh, hey, there is a piano in there. Because up until that point, I thought he he was just like sitting on the wings of the stage, watching them take a, take a Dark Star way out. Which, I mean, can you blame them? Like, they've been playing half-hour Dark Stars for, you know, several years at this point, And you're just going to walk up there and jam along with the dead on their uh trademark song but yeah i mean he's i think a lot of the times why he's inaudible too is that he kind of doubles what bob does right so i noticed that in like not fade away and stuff where there's a couple times where they're clearly just playing like the same sort of rhythm pattern and yeah you know who can blame him he's only been in the dead for three weeks at this point and you know he's he's doing the best he can I love Keith. And Keith, you know, not the most aggressive guy. He seems like a pretty chill dude, so he's definitely going to go with the flow. If if the sound guy's going to turn him down, he's not going to complain about it too much. Um, exactly. The other big uh, Grateful Dead news from October of 71 is that the Skull and Roses record came out that month. And it came out just the week before this show. So a lot of the songs from that record showed up in this set, especially in the first set. Uh, they played a lot from this record. And I love this record. I, I'm a big fan of this album. This is actually an album that I recommend to people when they want to get into the Grateful Dead. And uh, they're looking for an entry point. You know, a lot of people will talk about American Beauty or Working Man's Dead, but, like, those albums, to me, in a way, are anomalies in terms of, like, the overall career of the Grateful Dead doesn't really sound like their live stuff uh the Skull and Roses record of course was recorded live and then obviously overdubbed uh on the actual record but it does give you more of like a real flavor of like what this band is like and there's incredible songs on this record including Bertha playing in the band uh, uh the, me and my uncle's on this record Warfrath is on this Warfrath is on this record um so I'm a big fan of this album. I feel like it's like a little underrated in the overall yeah, sort of it's a dead weird discography. One. Yeah, because like uh, you know, so it comes what two years after Live Dead, and obviously the year before Europe '72, which are both like, like the, sort of those... the, like the big officially released or like the you know record company released live records by the Dead. Like those two, yeah, are the big ones. those are like the big the big tent poles. And I could listen to those albums like every day for the rest of my life. And Skull and Roses is one that I like rarely reach for. And I don't know why, because I listen to it again today and I'm like, you know, a lot of these songs that I sort of associate with being 
sort of Europe 72 debuts. Like I always joke that Europe 72 is my favorite dead studio album because one, it has so many overdubs and two, it had so many songs that just hadn't really shown up before. They just decided to put them out as live versions first. Um, but yeah, some of them are actually, I was mistaken, go back to Skull and Roses, like Bertha or playing in the band or things like that. So yeah, it's, it's got a nice mix and like the overdubs are like so egregious that they're kind of like hilarious. <laughs> like the Warf Rat <laughs> right. is like, you know, the least live recording. It's got like double tracked Jerry and there's a piano like all over it at a time when they didn't even have a piano player in the band. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think like... And I, I, I think the difference between, like, this record and, like, Europe 72 and Live Dead is that, like, I think of those other two albums as being presented as, like, a representation of a Grateful Dead concert, where I almost feel like Skull and Roses, it kind of reminds me of that Jackson Brown record, Running on Empty, where they were all original songs that he recorded, like, live, but but it's not presented as a live record it's presented like as a as a record record uh it's just that yeah. he happened to have like recorded it live or like rem did that on new adventures in hi-fi uh yeah. where and i feel like skull and roses is the same where you know they recorded these songs live and a lot of them were recorded earlier in 71 during their fillmore east run in, in april that's like where a majority of those tracks come from I don't feel like they're really trying to represent it as like a as a Grateful Dead concert. I think they're trying to present it as like a collection of songs that they happen to have recorded live because that's the best way for the Dead to get like the best versions of their songs. So I, I appreciate it for that uh, more. Right, than, yeah, so, so it's the Dead's uh, time fades away. That's a good way to make me yeah listen exactly to it a lot more. yeah exactly. Whereas yeah. whereas I feel like because like Europe seventy two is obviously very overdubbed too, but I feel like when you listen to that, it's presented as like a live record, like where you're supposed to sort of digest it as like a, a representation of of like a Grateful Dead concert. Um, yeah, for sure. I, I don't get that as much from from Skull and Roses, and um, and, and and again, just like the songs that are on that record, I think are are great and. And I wish the Dead had done that more, actually, where they didn't go into a studio, uh, especially like later on in the '70s, like when they were making like Shakedown Street and like these some of these studio records, like where they're just making totally bizarre decisions in the studio to make their songs sound like way worse than they should, you know? Because they obviously That's don't right. they don't really know how to use a studio very well. It's like no, just record it live and make that your album you know like that that's the best way for you guys to work and i feel like they did that on skull and roses so i really appreciate it for, for that reason um yeah so so that record comes out obviously a big grateful dead release another thing i want to talk about in terms of the context of this concert that i think is that i think is important even though it's sort of tangentially related to the grateful dead is that Dwayne allman died two days before this show. This show took place, again, it was Halloween, 71. It was a Sunday. And Dwayne Allman died on the 29th, which w which was a Friday. So this is like part of the same weekend. And um, there's a couple of things that are interesting about that to me. First of all, Dwayne Allman, of course, played with the Grateful Dead. He played with them earlier this year. I think he played with them during that Film East run in, in April of 71, that ended up, you know, being part of Skull and Roses. I think he played with them in 72, like him and Greg Ullman. Like, they played together a couple times. Yeah. Um, and then Dwayne Ullman's last show, 
I think I looked this up earlier today. I think it was October 17th, 1971. So it was like two, 12 days before he died. And of course, for those who don't know, Dwayne Allman died in a motorcycle crash. And then another member of the Allman Brothers band, Barry Oakley, died in another motorcycle crash almost exactly a year later within a couple of blocks of like the same place where Dwayne Allman died. So definitely the freakiest rock deaths or among the freakiest in music history. You know, I don't know if things were different back then. It's a little weird to me that like the dead didn't like give a shout out to Dwayne Allman at these shows, you know, like, or tip a cap in some way. It's like, Hey, we're playing this one, like you know, play war for rat, rat and dedicated to uh Dwayne Allman or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They they didn't really have their like like standard like tribute to somebody who died songs yet, <laughs> which they eventually had. I mean, he's gone is the one that they usually go to, and like because it was written about Pigpen essentially, even though it was it debuted before but they Pigpen could, died. They could have played but... like Broke Down Palace or something and dedicated it. Yeah, you know, they 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 had a lot of songs about death though already. You know, that could have been yeah, easily. Put in, but maybe that wasn't something he did back then. You know, I don't know. Maybe that was yeah. considered bad form. I mean, because I assume that they heard about it. It's not like new. It's not. Right. It's not that news traveled that slow back then. So yeah. I, I'd imagine that would have affected them in some way. But it's interesting to to uh, to imagine that that is in their minds as they're on this tour. You know that sure. The, the, and Dwayne Allman, of course, was only twenty four when he died. And uh, great loss to music at the time. So the next time you listen to this record, just imagine that like the Grateful Dead just don't give a shit that Dwayne Allman died. And they're still playing this show. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't well, care. There are those. They didn't care. I, I, they I didn't lo- care. Yeah. They were cold. <laughs> yeah. Grump, grumpy Phil. Hey, man. We didn't even talk about Phil in the first set, like oh, lecturing man. the crowd not to jump on the seats at the Ohio Theater. Oh, <laughs> and then... Let's wait. Let's wait on that. That that, that's good stuff. Let's wait on that because yeah, Phil, Phil is the Phil is the cop of the Grateful Dead. You know, I I just think of like he's uh, the dad, stepdad. Yeah, he's the stepdad. Hi, this is Henry Kay, host of the number one music history podcast, Rootsland. Come with me on a journey to Kingston, Jamaica, where we explore the world of reggae music and the untold stories of some of the genre's greatest legends. From the ghettos and tenement yards where the music was born to the island's iconic recording studios. We are so excited to team up with Osiris Media, the leading storyteller in music. Because as you'll hear, sometimes the story is the best song. Before we get to that, though, I, we, we, we should do some more scene setting here. 
Yeah, so, you know, for October of 71, like when they're playing this show. So, so Dwayne Allman has just died. You know, one of Rock's great tragedies, certainly like in the jam world, you know, one of the great, you know, huge paradigm shifting events has just happened. Uh, the number one song in the country uh, the week of the show was Maggie May by Rod Stewart. Now, we've never talked about Rod Stewart. Like, what are your feelings about Rod Stewart? Are you pro or anti-Rod? I very- despise Rod Stewart. He's one of these people that I just have never. You despise like, Rod Stewart? For. Are you serious? Yeah. yeah. His, like, his voice is the uh, proverbial nails on a chalkboard for me. Holy shit! Like I, at first I thought you were joking when you said you despised him. But like, so yeah, it, no. just his voice, or yeah, like... it's. The, I mean, so we're, we're both of an age. It came up with, I think the uh, what the '80s Rod Stewart, Forever Young Rod Stewart, dating yeah. supermodels Rod Stewart, right? Right. And it's the kind of thing that I've like. One, I've never been able to get over that, and two, I haven't really tried very hard because I find his voice just so like off-putting. I've oh. I've tried. And I know which Faces album is it that came out that year? Well, okay, here's the thing. Yeah, 1971. Okay, I, my whole, I want you to get over this Rod Stewart thing, and I think 1971 Rod Stewart is right. like a Sell good. Sell me on it. Sell me. Okay, because it's it's like one of the greatest years I think anyone's ever had in like rock and roll. Like he had an incredible year. You know, in uh, in February of 71, the Faces put out. This record called Long Player, which is a great record. There's a song on there called Bad and Rune, which is like one of the great Faces songs, used very memorably in an episode of The Sopranos. Uh, it, it scores like a, a hit carried out by Tony Blandetto, played by Steve Buscemi. I think it's like in season five or six. Um, right. There's also a great cover of Maybe I'm Amazed on that record, uh, the Paul McCartney song. Yeah, I, I, I'm imagining that and hating it. <laughs> oh, my God. So great. So then in May of 71, Rod Stewart puts out a solo record called Every, Every Picture Tells a Story, which is like an amazing okay, I, solo I've record. I've heard that one. Great That's cover. This, great, that ha- I love that art. Like great album cover. Rod Stewart. Yeah. It has Maggie May on it. It has Reason to Believe, the Tim Harden song, mm-hmm. which is the B-side yeah. of Maggie May. It has Mandolin Wynn. It has the title track, Every Picture Tells a Story. Great record. Then, later on in 71, The Faces put out a second record called A Nod Is a, a Nod is As Good of a Wink. No, wait. A Nod is As Good of, as a Wink <laughs> to a Blind Horse is the name of the record. I and have that, that one. That is I have the, it on my shelf. That is the greatest Faces record. Just an amazing rock and roll record. Uh, so that's three just masterpieces released in 71. By Rod Stewart. So, I implore you and anyone else that's agnostic or or hostile to Rod Stewart, check out those three albums. Yeah, Rod, but, is, but Steve, our, his voice. Tell, tell me on his voice. Tell me why. Why should I like his voice? Well, see, this is. I mean, I can't really tell you. I mean, do you like Sam Cooke? Because yeah. I feel like Rod Stewart is like the rock and roll Sam Cooke. I, it's like he has that sort of raspy mm, okay. thing going on. Uh, yeah. That kind of soulful thing. Very I mean, raspy. I, th- 
I mean, I think he sounds a lot like Sam Cooke. And, of course, Rod covered Twisting the Night Away, which is a Sam Cooke song. I think that was on Never a Dull Moment, which is the record after Every Picture Tells a Story. I mean, really, like, the first, like, four or five Rod Stewart solo records are amazing records. Like, folk rock, sloppy drums, like, just incredible, like, hoist your pints of beer type rock and roll music. They're so good. And, like, all the faces stuff is so good. Uh, so Rod Stewart, again, a big star of 71. He's like one of the biggest rock stars in the world at the time of this Grateful Dead show. The number one album in the country, Imagine by John Lennon, was the number one record. Very good John Lennon record. I think it's his second best solo record. I don't know how big you are on John Lennon solo records. Yeah, Plastic solo. Ono, Plastic Ono Band, I think, is like his best solo record yeah that's the one i go to i'm surprised it was only number one for one week imagine well and it had just displaced every picture tells a story by rod stewart that's right. again that, that's how huge this dude was uh in the fall of 71 um yeah. did you notice that like one of your favorite albums of all time was number one like a couple months before this the jesus christ superstar Thank you for pointing that out. It, uh, <laughs> it hit the top of the charts twice. Yes. You're big, Once you're... in February and uh, for two weeks in May, uh, bookending Janis Joplin's run at the top of the charts. Did Janis I... Joplin die that year, too? Is that why that was such a big hit? I think she did, yeah. I think she died. I think, cause, well, her, yeah, Pearl was her number one record in 71. Right, and Pearl that was, was her... posthumous. That was yeah. her last record. But yeah, like, yeah, JCS, Displaced Pearl... And then JCS was displaced by Four Way Street, the live record by Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young, which is like a pretty good record. I'm not like yeah, it's all yeah. right. I love that um, box set that they put out like four or five years ago from the Doom yeah, Tour. Yeah, that's from the that's from the Doom Tour though. Yeah, Four Way Street is is earlier, a little earlier, seventy one. Like, but um, yeah. And then, you know, you have Sticky Fingers was number one record that year. Tapestry was yeah. number one record by Carole King. And uh, yeah. the, the soundtrack to Shaft was number one going into November. And then There's a Riot Going On was also number one record that year by Sly and the Family Stone. So all Oof. classics. Good year. Yeah. Really good. I mean, 71 is like one of the greatest rock years or, or yeah. pop music years of the modern era, I would say. Uh, so the number one film the week of this Grateful Dead show was The French Connection with yeah. Gene Hackman, directed by William Friedkin. That's, and I love the, I love The French Connection. Great, great yeah, movie. That's a, that's a good one. Um, and The Last Picture Show, Peter Bogdanovich, was released earlier this month. Another, I think, just American masterpiece. Incredible movie. Have you seen The Last Picture Show? I I still haven't seen it. I've been wanting to. Oh, man. Uh, it's, it, it's up there on my list. Yeah, everyone, okay, go listen to some Rod Stewart, and then go li- go watch <laughs> The Last Picture Show. Um, and then, like, the following week after this show, uh, Fiddler on the Roof came out, the famous musical, Norman Jewison, and Play Misty for Me, the first directorial effort from Clint Eastwood. Yeah. Uh, Clint Eastwood, already directed movies in 1971. Yeah, man. And starring Jessica Walter from Arrested Development. She plays sort of like a sexy, crazy woman in that movie. 
And uh, wow. that's that, that's a great movie. And the number one TV show, of course, was All in the Family. Which... <laughs> Didn't I tell you? <laughs> Last episode. <laughs> yes. All in the Family. I'm, yeah, I'm hoping that sometime we'll get a mash in here. I feel like for the 70s, uh, mash will be number one at some point. Maybe if, you know, once we get into like... 76 77 maybe mash will sneak in there uh or else did the dead play a show the night of the final mash episode that like nobody showed up to because everybody in the world was watching mash (laughs) that's a good question i mean it it does kind of blow your mind to think like you know because like back then like an average audience for like all in the family was probably like 40 million people would like watch one episode (laughs) and and yet and yet you know the dead could still play a show they could still attract enough people that would tear their faces away from the tv to watch archie Mm. bunker drop racial slurs in front of millions of people (laughs) uh to go see the dead um yeah all right so let's get into this show so we've already talked about the fact that this show is heavily edited in terms of the set list you know and you know, it's really just the second set with no encore. The encore is cut off. Yeah. So we're talking about, I think it's six songs over the course of 58 minutes. And one of them's played twice. Yeah. And one of them is played. Yeah, exactly. I mean, really, it's about four. If you really want to right. think about, like, Not Fade Away, <laughs> Not Fade Away with uh, Going Down the Road Feeling Bad in the middle, and then you have Not Fade Away again on the other side of it. Um you know, I listened to the entire show on re-listen, and it's interesting listening to that first set because, as you said before, it's not, on paper, anything that's radically different from what you would expect from sort of a typical uh, early 70s Grateful Dead show. Um, and yet, I found myself really enjoying the first set, and I think it has to do with the fact that while the songs that they played in that set ended up becoming standards for the dead, it was still early enough where they hadn't played those songs to death quite yet. And while they weren't doing anything radically different with them, there is a certain energy that comes from those songs being relatively fresh that I think made them feel more lively to me. So I I actually really liked the first set. And again, I, I guess in terms of like, you know, length it's not very long but like, there's a lot of songs in that set i mean it's a very yeah. very song heavy set Cause, like, again, a lot of them are played very short like right i was laughing at the fact that like playing in the band is shorter than loser for instance like yeah and they're both they're both you know seven minutes tops like well, well yeah because like playing in the band was like on uh you know they played that on volume one dick's picks and mm-hmm. that version is like what like 20 minutes long you know that's like when they yeah. were starting to get really sort of noodly with that whereas yeah again like in this show yeah it's about four and a half minutes five minutes long it's like much tighter yeah, yeah. the other thing is i don't know about you but like I definitely, you know, not just with The Dead, but with Fish and other jam bands as well, like, kind of appreciate a song you first set sometimes as, like, just sort of like an on-ramp to, like, the bigger, like, deeper jams that come in the second set, typically. Right. And so, like, it is a little bit strange to just kind of, like, drop right into a 23-minute Dark Star without, you know, having some Bobby Cowboy songs warming you up in the first set, you know? (laughs) Right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and and we'll get into this when we talk about the album. I think there, there's, 
if you're going to talk about the wisdom of doing like a tight one disc dicks picks, I guess it would be that it's a good introduction to, for people that aren't familiar with the Grateful Dead that, you know, you maybe can't expect them to sit through like a three hour two disc show, but like a one disc show that still manages to have like some jamming on it. It does give you a taste of like what this band is like without going into overkill. You know, I, I yeah, mean, that, but... that, that would be the pro argument for doing that. I don't totally buy that argument but like well and also we're still at a time where the dicks pick shows were i think mail order only like they were very much not here's a single disc introduction to the dead for people who haven't heard the dead before they were (laughs) like for fans by fans like you know they was you know no no rookies uh no rookies allowed and i think that's kind of why you know they went with just like the meat of this show is like I'm sure from the moment they started, you know, doing dicks picks, people were, I don't know how they would contact the Grateful Dead offices in the mid nineties, like letters, postcards, calling them up, but they were demanding like every dark star be released from the first one to the last. So like people just wanted to get straight to the dark star, I'm sure. And that's, you know, that's what they gave them here. So in the first set, we have Bertha, me and my uncle deal playing in the band and again like three out of those first four songs are all from the skull and roses record so it makes sense why they'd be playing those loser al paso tennessee jed what's your stance on tennessee jed by the way do you like that song that's always like the song that's like a skippable song almost for me at this point i'm not so super that's like excited. Your, your bathroom break uh choice well that's, maybe i mean i don't going I don't, out of bounds a little I don't dislike it. I mean, I, I mean, it's, it's like when we start getting into like '80s Dead shows, I feel like they'd play Tennessee Jed like every show, right. and it was always like eight or nine minutes long, and it just felt like kind of interminable. Actually, yeah, yeah. Like in this show, it actually again, because it wasn't, it was still a relatively new song. It has a little bit more energy to it, so I, I enjoyed it more in this set than I did, than I do maybe in a lot of other Dead shows. Um, Jack Straw comes after that. Jack Straw is like the opposite end of the spectrum for me. That's probably my favorite Bob song, like mm-hmm. of all time. Yeah. Like, how do you feel about Jack Straw? Are you are you pro? I love or kinda, it. Yeah, that's. Yeah, no, it's great, and I like these early versions too. Before they like figured it out and were trading verses and things, like right. It's it's it, it's a cool song to hear, sort of uh, take shape live. I know, like when Robert Hunter died, the Jack Straw lyric was one of the lyrics that came to mind is just being like a great example of robert hunter storytelling yeah exactly because that song just unfolds like a movie to me you know just it's like a Mm -hmm. sam peckinpah western uh that unfolds in the course of over the course of four minutes um yeah big railroad blues another skull and roses song brown eyed women mexicali blues which was a song that ended up on weir's solo record ace which came out the year after this show in 72 Casey Jones, Cumberland Blues, One More Saturday Night. Like a pretty, like, Bob-heavy set, uh, the first set. It is, yeah. And, and a, spot- lot of, a lot of blues. A lot of songs that end in blues. That's <laughs> true. A lot of blues. Uh, but, I, you know, I think spotlighting Bob at his best. I mean, like, playing in the band, like a pretty compact version of that. Again, Jack Straw, you know, great Bob Weir song. And then Mexicali Blues, a song I always like. 
Um, One More Saturday Night, I'm, you know, I don't mind that song. I'm never like excited to hear One More Saturday Night, but I don't, I don't, I don't dislike it. It's kind of weird that that would come at the end of the first set. That always seems like yeah. a end of the night type song. And, and speaking of snarky stepdad Phil, did you catch his banter before <laughs> that as well? I wrote this one down because I thought it was so funny. Oh, and that's right. He sa- he sounds incredibly sarcastic, and he says, this here is a new one designed to rock you all the way out to the parking lot, <laughs> which is funny because it's the end of the first set. It's not, the, as you say, it's not the end of the show. Right. So, I mean, maybe, maybe they had a, a liberal in-out policy at the Ohio Theater so everybody could go out and smoke during uh, set break. In fact, that's probably what they did back then. But I, I still thought it was amusing that Phil, it sounded like Phil was telling everybody to leave. Well, <laughs> like halfway through the show. Well, and we alluded to this earlier, but there's this part at the end of Me and My Uncle like where yeah, Phil starts chastising people for jumping on the seats at the Ohio theater. And like, (laughs) he's saying like, you know, this is a nice theater. And again, like, as we said, this, the theater was, you know, 40 years old at this point. So it was already like a pretty old venue. And he's telling people not to jump on their seats. And I'm just thinking like, this is a Halloween show. Like this, this audience (laughs) is probably pretty rambunctious anyway. And then Halloween, you know, they're probably extra rambunctious. So, you know, Phil's telling him not to jump on the seats. And then Jerry comes in and like kind of makes fun of Phil for, yeah. you know, for, for doing this. And it just made me think of uh, that part from uh, once, uh, from Long Strange Trip where they talk about how in the 80s, you know, like when the, when the parking lot scene got out of control at Grateful Dead shows and like they were telling people like, if you don't have a ticket, don't come to the show. And like they couldn't get Jerry to do a recording of that so like phil did it and i was like of right. course phil did it you know phil yeah yeah he's the cop of the grateful dead although in a way i kind of sympathize with phil cause it's like phil he's like the guy like like if you and your buddies like you rent like an airbnb for the weekend you're gonna have a party and it's like phil's the guy who actually like set up the booking and it's in his name and he has to like worry about people trashing the apartment so he's like hey guys right. okay guys okay don't spill beer on the couch you know yeah okay, don't he's add, a responsible one yeah don't yeah don't leave your cigarette butts on the patio you know and like everyone's like oh god okay this guy he's a, he's a buzzkill but it's like if not for this guy you wouldn't have you, you wouldn't have even booked this place so he has to be the responsible one so as annoying as phil is a little bit in the first yeah. set you always feel like okay he just wants to make sure that they, they can continue to tour and make a living so he wants the crowd yeah, to behave the, themselves somebody's got to be the adult in the room right, <laughs> right. And I, I, unfortunately it, it, it fell to old phil who, <laughs> you know i should add I, I absolutely love phil i do too and have seen have seen him a lot now love him back then love him now i love that he's the only one with the integrity not to play with john mayer <laughs> the first pa- pa- is, pause is for it- laughter <laughs> is is that your first shot at uh, Mayor in, in this show? I think that might be the first official shot at Mayor. Do is you think... that the uh, From the Vault drinking game? <laughs> I think so. I think so. Take a shot out there, everybody. The first of many shots, I'm sure, at John yes. Mayer on this podcast. But right. I, mean, I mean, do you think that's it? Do you think he doesn't want to play with John Mayer? Or do you think there's just... Uh, some other i mean because phil... I mean, honestly i think yeah i mean i think you know it's it's probably health and 
you know, a little bit of just not wanting to be on the road all the time. He pretty much plays where he wants to play and he hangs out at his restaurant, which I've been to. It's beautiful. I love it. It was great. I saw Phil read like children's books to like kids, including my son. It was an amazing experience. You know, thanks a lot, Phil. Uh, But yeah, he just likes to play there and he likes to play in New York. And every so often he plays like some jam band festival and I don't know what he does the rest of the time, but he's he's clearly uh, uh, pretty content. Did you read that book about uh, the Fare Thee Well tour and like just like the post Jerry Garcia years? I can't remember the name. There was a book that that came out. I think it was called Fare Thee Well that talked about just sort of like the post Garcia years and like the Further Festival and yeah and like the it dead just talk, and that and stuff. I. Uh, I should reread this and like I'll bring it up in future episodes. This is a pretty interesting book. I mean, I, I I get the feeling that like Phil is a bit of like a fly in the ointment, you know, or he has been in mm-hmm. the past, like with you know Grateful Dead business dealings, you know, related to this this Dick's Picks thing about how Phil was sort of the difficult one. I, I feel like he's right. been difficult in other sort of business propositions that they've been doing. I wonder, like, if Phil had... Let's say Phil woke up tomorrow and he's like, I want to join Dead & Company. Like, would they let him do it? Or, like, would they have a choice? I, I, I wonder if they would want... If the other guys would want him involved. Because it just seems hmm. like it's probably easier not to have him involved. Even though, in a way, maybe it would help the box office. Although, they're already playing stadiums. So, I mean, they've proven that yeah. they don't need <laughs> Phil... To right. sell tickets, um, I don't know. Like my sense yeah. is that things are probably a lot smoother not having him on board, even if it maybe isn't as authentic of a band not having him in right. the band. Yeah, I mean, I can't keep track of like who is mad at who anymore in Dead World. I've, <laughs> I've given up. It's like uh, it's like the whole CSNY thing again with right. everybody who's who's not talking to who at any one moment, and uh, you know what. 30 year old arguments are like keeping these people apart um, oh, man. i did see bob and i saw the bob and phil tour a couple years ago when they were when they played a like a short run of shows and they seemed to get along like just the minimum amount to <laughs> actually pull off like a, a pretty good concert um but you know whatever it's like yeah you're right i think both sides of the equation are pretty happy with what they're doing and you know, the, the Grateful Dead cash cow never stops paying out, so why shouldn't they be? What is a city without its music? The legacy of the New York Philharmonic is incredible. Nearly two centuries of history. That's a lot of music and a lot of stories. I was sitting on stage for the very first time thinking, I can't quite believe this is happening. Join me, Jamie Bernstein, as we explore the history of the New York Philharmonic. It's the NY Phil story made in New York, a podcast about a city, its people, and their orchestra. Listen wherever you get podcasts. 
Hey everyone, just taking a quick break from this episode of 36 from the Vault, where we're celebrating the music of the Grateful Dead, to tell you about another group of people who are celebrating the music of the Grateful Dead, and that is the Skull and Roses Festival that's taking place in Ventura County in California uh, from April 2nd to the 5th. And it's basically just a bunch of musicians and bands playing Grateful Dead music. We talk about Grateful Dead music here on the podcast, but there's nothing better than actually being in a field or a desert or wherever you may be and listening to this music. And uh, there's some really cool groups playing there this year. You got Billy and the Kids. You have O'Teal and Friends. I'd actually like to see see that. O'Teal, of course, he's the bass player for Dead & Co. Played in the Allman Brothers for a long time. Hell of a musician. That'd be great to see. So go see the Skull and Roses Festival. That's again April 2nd to the 5th in Ventura County, California. So yeah, so be sure to check that out. Sounds like a great time. Okay, now back to 36 from the Vault. So let's get to the actual Dix picks here. As we said, it starts off with the second set and with a... A 23-minute version of Dark Star, which, you know, by Dark Star standards, isn't excessively long. You know, it's like about typical. I mean, there's definitely longer Dark Stars than this. Um, But I think the way it's positioned on the record, it's, I think it's intended to be the star, you know, no pun intended, of this release. And, you know, it's a parlor game with Grateful Dead fans to talk about, like, what their favorite Dark Star is of all time. I mean, this isn't my favorite Dark Star, but I think it's a really good Dark Star. And it's interesting digging into sort of the lineage of this particular version because uh, fans have linked it to other versions of Dark Star as as well as other jams that have occurred in the song Dancing in the Streets that have occurred from 69 to 71. And it's called the Tighten Up Jam. And... I don't know if you're familiar with this. You can tell it begins in this version of Dark Star at around the 1330 mark, where Bob starts playing this sort of like funky guitar part that's kind of more melodic than the rest of the song. You know, like the, the rest, mm-hmm. like like leading up to that, it is more of like a typical Dark Star, kind of a noodly, jazzy, you know, interstellar exploration. And then around the 1330 mark, it takes this shift into sort of like this funky guitar riff that they ride for the next several minutes. And it's like really cool. And yeah. the reason why they call it Tighten Up Jam is that it it's similar to this song called Tighten Up, which was a 1968 hit by a group called Archie Bell and the Drells. Have you ever heard that song? Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's like a classic well, song. Classic, yeah. R, classic R&B jam. Considered one of the like foundational songs of of funk music before funk was really right. sort of regarded as like a standalone genre like this song as well as you know obviously the James Brown material that was coming right. out this time and early Sly and the Family Stone all that stuff were the building blocks of what became funk in the 1970s and um the Grateful Dead returned to that sort of musical motif many times in 69 and 70 especially and you can actually go online there's an article that's really interesting it's on the internet archive forums 
where someone went through all these sort of Grateful Dead live recordings and they found other instances of the dead playing with this riff and other jams. And some of them are in Dark Star. Some of them, as, as I said before, are in Dancing in the Street. For instance, the Dancing in the Street in the Harper College show that we mentioned earlier that ended up being released as Dick's Picks Volume 8, there's a section of that which has the same riff that occurs. Mm-hmm. And that was in 70. And according to this article, they went back to that riff many times in 70. And then they didn't do it for a while. And then they did it at this 71 show uh, this, for the Sticks Picks. And that was the last time they did it. It's like the last yeah. instance of the Tighten Up Jam. Um, yeah. But I, it's actually, it's interesting. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated by the fact that so like this is just one of a lot of different themes that the dead would regularly jam on in sort of these early days and in some cases all the way up to like the end of their run like you have the tighten up jam you have the mind left body jam you have the feeling groovy jam the spanish jam there's all these names named jams that in some cases were named by the fans so it's never quite clear whether they actually are all the same thing or like the band intended them to be all the same thing right or whether it's just sort of like a, a sort of taper hive mind thing that they came up with um but I'm, I'm it's always been fascinating to me how sort of like modular dead jams could be that like yes they were improvising and they could go way out there and be super free and like just happen upon new themes that they could carry through but they also had these sort of like sort of ready set chord progressions that they could pull out in cases where they felt like they just needed to go in a particular direction and tighten up. Well, and like the tighten it, up jam being an example of this, yeah. And from their perspective, you know, they're just playing shows. They're playing, you know, they knew. I'm sure that some people were following them, but for the most part, they're playing for different audiences every night. And they didn't. I'm sure they didn't conceive in like 1970 or 71 that people would be like obsessively studying every show they ever played like 50 years right. later like we're doing yeah. on this podcast so you know it probably didn't occur to them that like oh yeah like if we if we have some of these sort of recurring motifs you know like we'll know they're there but maybe but the audience surely won't notice that we're doing this um right. and, yeah, yeah. but you bring up a good point that like i don't think that the band themselves have ever like talked about this and said oh yeah we liked that Archie Bell song, so we like kind of dropped right. it into this jam. I, reading that Internet Archive article, you know, there's other songs that they've speculated that uh, that the Dead were inspired by, and, and one of the songs, sort of like an alternate theory to tighten up, was "Beginnings" by the band mm-hmm. Chicago. <laughs> like, right. Yeah, you know, and and "Beginnings" is a song that, like, you know, if you listen to like AM pop radio or you listen to like oldies radio like you know that song it's like a pretty popular kind of like hippie era like pop song uh mm-hmm. of the time so in a way i kind of wish that it was the chicago song that they were <laughs> like, <laughs> like, like, like no, we just love chicago and uh and like this article it goes into how you know like terry kath the guitar player from chicago like i guess he had played with the dead a little bit uh like in the late 60s so like you know the writer of the article was 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 speculating that like the dead would have known that record so it's possible right. that they liked that song and you know maybe took the progression again, t- tighten up was the number one like it it hit number one in the country right yeah i, I think mean it was, it was, it was number it was one a pop massive hit. success 
Which, yeah. by, which, by the way, like you listen to that now, and like it's so it's so cool <laughs> that that was like the number one song because I know it's basically just a guy like yelling at his band for three minutes. Yeah, <laughs> while I mean, they play a funk groove. Yeah, it's yeah, it's like a studio jam. It's like pretty raw. It's like not really a song. Yeah. It's just like kind of like a groove, but like it's it really slaps and like it sounds awesome yeah. and and it's like wow like something this raw and unpolished was like the number one song in the country it's like captured the cool. imagination of the entire country yeah so i don't know if we want to get into like a dark star discussion i you know i'm not as big of like a dark star disciple as some people you know like there's some people that like feel like that's like the be all end all of the grateful dead and like yeah. they'll actually like rank their favorite dark stars uh actually Pause there for a minute. Another thing that was interesting from that Internet Archive story that didn't occur to me when I was listening to this Dark Star, but it made sense after I read this, is that some fans have said that that Tighten Up Jam is actually a precursor to Eyes of the World. That, right, yeah. That, and it, that totally makes sense after I read it. And now when I listen mm-hmm. to this Dark Star, it totally makes me feel like, oh, yeah, this is like Eyes of the World, you know, two or three years before Eyes of the World. And Eyes of the World right. is a be-all, end-all song for me, personally, for Grateful Dead. Like, I love that song, and I love what they did with that as a jam vehicle. Um, yeah. So that's really cool. It probably explains why the Tighten Up Jam, like, disappeared after this show. Because, I mean, what what seems logical to me is that they liked playing this chord progression. So they just kind of changed the key of it and built Eyes of the World out of it. Right. Like, it seems like it would be a, a, a pretty short walk. Uh, to make, you know, make that assumption, and yeah, then they could jam on it, you know, all the live long day with uh, their own song instead of like dropping this into other other songs. So yeah, I mean, it 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 it, it has that same like rhythm that the Eyes of the World chords have. It's just in a different key. So, so how do you feel like this Dark Star stands like in the pantheon of Dark Stars? Like for you? Yeah. Like- so. I am not like a big Dark Star scholar either, even though I like it, I think, more than you do. Like, it is sort of like the dead song that I mean, I, I love Dark Star. Most. I don't want to yeah. say that, kind of, but like, I'm just saying, like, some people are like, that's their number one. It's like, not, it's not my number yeah. one. I admit, but, yeah, I obviously, yeah. but I obviously love Dark Star. So I just want to say, yeah. not knocking Dark I mean, Star. When, yeah. When people ask, like, what my favorite Dark Star is, I feel like I have really, like, generic opinions like i love the live dead dark star and i love the dicks picks volume four dark star <laughs> which we'll talk about in a couple episodes and which which feel like very like entry level dead maybe like 201 level dead like right. once you've gotten to the point where you can handle a half hour dark star but both of those are the ones that i pretty much compare all dark stars to in my mind uh and so i got to admit like i didn't want to interrupt you earlier but I kind of actually don't really like this Dark Star as much as a lot of Dark Stars. Like, I know this is meant to be, like, the featured, like, performance on this Dick's Picks. But, and I, I really like the Tighten Up Jam. But I feel like the, like, 13 minutes leading up to it are pretty aimless as far as Dark Stars go. And it, the Tighten Up Jam really feels like sort of the band making, like, an effort to just go in a totally different direction and save a dark star that is sort of meandering up to that point. Like it's not really doing much for me until this kicks in. Yeah. I, I, I kind of agree with that. I, I mean, I, I like this dark star a lot overall and, but I do believe, I, I do agree that it doesn't really totally click into place until like that 1330 mark and like the last 10 minutes 
I think are really great. And that, and it probably makes me like the first 13 minutes more because it's building up to that. And I mean, I wouldn't call it aimless because I'm not bored by it. I'm always like, I'm pretty like sucked in to that part of the jam, but like, yeah, it's not, it's not my favorite dark star. Actually, one of my favorite dark stars ever, and no one ever really talks about this one, but I love the dark star from Dick's picks 19, which was a 73 show that they did uh, in Oklahoma city. And that, that has a mind left body jam in it as well. And I just love 73 dark stars. I mean, I love 1973 anyway, as I talked about in our last episode, but um, the dark stars from that year are a little jazzier and a little more laid back and a little spacier. And um, that's my favorite kind of dark star, like when they get spacey and and a little jazzy and, and, and more pretty. And I feel like mm. this like this one, um, it kind of approaches that in the first part without really getting there. I I feel like they're they're trying to find something and they don't quite get there. And then the the, the tighten up part of the jam is really cool, um, but it feels almost like a separate thing. And it's almost like a, it's almost, this isn't a criticism. It's going to sound like the way I'm putting it is a criticism, but it's like, it's a little too song oriented almost for a dark star, you know, hmm. like, like dark stars are tended to not be as melodic as that is. Like, it, like it sounds like a song, whereas I feel like dark stars are generally more, um, they have more of a free form feel to them, I think at their best. Right. Um, and, well, it and, really pops out of you because of that. Yeah. And I mean, we'll get there, but the the uh, Dix Picks for Dark Star has the feeling groovy jam, one of the other many themes of the early dead. And uh, yeah, it feels the same way where it's just like all of a sudden, like a radio hit. <laughs> right. <laughs> it comes, it's like you're like you're tuning a radio, and all of a sudden you land on like an actual like poppy chord progression in the middle of this very experimental surroundings. So it, it, it's cool, but you know, going again, like you know, I, I'm just thinking of that, of that, you know, that Dick quote from the beginning that you read, where he said that you know he was speechless when he heard this, and like, it, <laughs> yeah, you know, it, it it made him rethink the whole concept of music or whatever. Like it's not, <laughs> it, it, it's not really like a mind blowing dark star. I feel like like that All kind right. of dark star. I think when people think about that, they think of like the Live Dead version. Like that has more. Of, of like a transcendental right. type feel to it. Like if you're going to mm-hmm. just be blown away and taken to a different place, like yeah, that's it's the kind my of favorite star. guitar performance of all time. Like Jerry on that dark star, like does it all for me. <laughs> like that's all I need from the guitar is that like, you know, 20 some minutes of dark star. Yeah. This one, I mean, it just, it feels like it's even in the tighten up jam, it feels like it's like dying out every couple minutes. And then somebody like steps it up and gets it going again. <laughs> like, right. like I almost want it to be a little more effortless, but you can really hear sort of like where things are sort of petering out and then somebody decides to like pick it back up again. Uh, it's great. It's fun. There's part of it also that sounds a lot like Slave to the Traffic Light, I got to say. <laughs> I don't know if you noticed that as well. Oh, yeah. If you go to... Fish fans, go to minute 18 of the Dick's Picks 2 Dark Star, and you can hear Slave to the Traffic Light 25 years ahead of time. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's kind of like there's, 
it, it's kind of cool hearing each of the band, each member of the band sort of take that role. Like there's a really cool Billy part, like around in towards the end of it. Yeah. I was going to say. Like picks it up all of a sudden starts playing like break beats, essentially. <laughs> that is <laughs> like one of kind of like gives them that last little oomph over the hill to get into Sugar Magnolia. Um, I was, I was going to say yeah, like, you know, it's that break beat part that Bill plays is like one of my favorite parts of that whole jam and it only lasts maybe 10 seconds like it, it, it's not that long and yeah. it, like you, and as you say like sugar magnolia comes in like right after that i was like they've already been playing this for 23 minutes but i'm like i i kind of wish that went on longer like that <laughs> right. I, I always feel like a little frustrated that sugar magnolia comes in there because i'm like oh that's like a really cool part that bill's playing mm-hmm. but he kind of drops it because they have to go into this other song yeah. I mean, I do think, like, this is all coming back to 71 being a really transitional year, being a new lineup, being new, like, Dark Star obviously isn't new material, but Sugar Magnolia is. Uh, so they're still sort of, like, figuring out, like, the natural place to put these things. And I feel like that kind of, I, I just get a sense of, like, indecisiveness from this Dark Star. Now, I like a lot of things later in this set a lot more, and I think that might be what Dick was referring to. I don't know. It's hard to tell because, I mean, he does talk about the Dark Star is why he picked this particular set. But the set has a lot more to offer than the Dark Star, I think. Well, let's go on to the next, I guess, two songs because they're the two kind of like outliers on this set. You know, because you have the Dark Star epic and then you have the Not Fade Away going down the road feeling bad epic at the end. And you have these two songs in the middle. You have Sugar Magnolia a great Bob Weir, Robert Hunter song. And I'm trying to think of like, because obviously we were talking about Jack Straw before, and you have Sugar Magnolia. What are some other like Bob Weir, Robert Hunter collaborations? Like, did they write Black Thread Wind together? Or was that like a... That was Barlow by then. Was that a Barlow song? Well, was that Barlow? Okay. So Sugar Magnolia is famously just... why Robert Hunter refused to write songs for Bob for a long time, because he kept changing the lyrics around. <laughs> I don't know if you know that story. It was like Bob. <laughs> no, I don't know that story. When Bob started, sort of, you know, early on, and you, we get there in this set a little bit too. The sort of early stages of Bob, just like I don't even know what to call it. It's like his own like version of like scat singing, where he's like, <laughs> you know, he starts saying "Hey now" every other line, <laughs> and uh, you know, sort of scraping those vocal cords whenever he can. But I'm. I'm 99% positive it was Sugar Magnolia that, like, Robert Hunter was just, found it so distasteful that Bob was taking such liberties with his words that he refused to write songs for him anymore, and so Bob uh, hooked up with John Perry Barlow instead for all of his 70s and 80s songs. I did learn that, like, eventually, but before The Dead ended, Bob and Robert Hunter wrote a couple of the, like, sort of early 90s debut Dead songs together, but yeah. This is this is towards the end of their collaboration, and it's a typical, you know, it's a, a, a classic kind of Grateful Dead maneuver where they play this spacey jam and then they go like right into like a feel good rock song. Like that was what they always did. Like where they would either play, uh, you know, like like a party song coming out of a jam, or they would play like one of those like slow moving Jerry Garcia ballads. Yeah. You know, usually the, the usually the ballads would come after like like a drum space 
type excursion where it got kind of really evil and dark and then they'd play this beautiful song but there was also this this thing that they would often do like where they would play something esoteric and kind of out there and then bring the people back with like a good time party jam right which seems like the the construct here like going into sugar magnolia yeah and that's kind of like a passing of the torch here i think because like saint stephen was that song for a long time like there are so many dark stars that go into saint stephen and of course that's what they do on live dead uh and this one goes into sugar magnolia instead and it eventually gets a saint stephen but it's the last saint stephen for a long time so i think it's a little bit like hey we like doing this song better now Right, right. Well, and I, I did think it was you know the, the part where I really missed Donna in this show was at the end of Sugar Magnolia because they go into the Sunshine Daydream part. Yeah, and I I just associate that with Bob and Donna. So just having Bob sing that and that being an example of what you were talking about earlier, where Bob is really starting to like ham sandwich it up, <laughs> you know, like with with his vocals. Right. Like I, I was thinking like the Sunshine Daydream part is being like. You know, like that's where he's really scatting and like really getting into it and howling and yeah, and all that stuff and where very bar band type of delivery. And I say that with affection. You know, sometimes it's a little too much, but like that's part of what I love about Bob Weir too. That that he'll go there. Um, but yeah, then they go into to to, to Saint Stephen and definitely a classic of like '60s Dead that they were in the process of phasing out at this point. Yeah, it's like, um, well, this is the last version until 76, I believe. And they played it a little bit 76, 77, and then in 83, and then never again. And I think, you know, towards the end there, it was the song Deadheads wanted to hear the most. I remember there were always rumors that they had sound checked it at those like 90s shows uh, just to get people hyped up that they were going to bring it back, and they never did. And it, there's all these like interviews of Jerry where he was like, yeah, I just like I got tired of playing it. <laughs> like, there's no like big secret as to why we retired Saint Stephen. It was just like not what I wanted to do anymore. And it also had a lot of words, and Jerry wasn't very good at remembering a lot of words towards the end. So, uh, yeah, no more Saint Stephen. And it's you know, you hold up in this show, especially like the energy of Sugar Magnolia compared to the energy of Saint Stephen in this show. It's not that great of a Saint Stephen. It's a li- it's already getting a little slow. When it came back, it was even slower. Um, But this one is kind of like, you know, it's a little limp compared to Sugar Magnolia, and they're not as excited about playing it. So it kind of makes sense that this is, you know, it's it's sort of first finale. Well, and all the real heads know that St. Stephen has come back in recent years with Dead & Company. (laughs) Oh, God. Thanks to founding guitar. Thanks to John Mayer bringing it back, bringing, bringing back the 60s Dead. Yeah, uh, keep I did find the flag. a video. <laughs> I was searching for something about yeah when Saint Stephen came back and came across some video somebody posted where Dead and Company screwed it up so bad they had to like literally stop the entire song and then restart it. <laughs> Love it. See that that to me is an argument for the for Dead and Company being an authentic Grateful Dead experience. You know, because like <laughs> that's true. It's very you true. Know, it's like you know, do you want them to be super polished like a Las Vegas band, or do you want them to you know fuck up songs where they have to start it over again? You know, like All right. Yeah. So that's the, that's the plus side for that. Uh, so. After St. Stephen, we get into the Not Fade Away, going down the road feeling bad, back into Not Fade Away. And you know, we talked about Dark Star being at the front of this set 
and in a way kind of put in a pole position to be the star of the set. But you feel like the real star is this end part, this end sequence. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a little bit like, I mean, they're very different songs, but in the same way that Sugar Magnolia is so much more enthusiastic than St. Stephen. I kind of feel like this, like not fade away sequence at the end is, has a lot more sort of energy and excitement behind it than the dark star does. Like everything that is indecisive about the dark star, like, even though it does get to some interesting places, like this one is just like a full on sprint for 20 minutes. And I, I, I don't know. It's maybe it's just that I'm like not as burnt out on this sort of not fade away going on the road feeling bad sandwich um but there's a lot of things i like about this version that make me want to listen to a whole bunch of them uh i just think it's like a really cool dynamic uh how they go in and out of the two songs like it's very fluid the segues are amazing billy is like incredible through this whole sequence like he finally gets to just kind of like rock out in a way that he doesn't really do in the dark star as much and uh like I really love how he like sticks to his toms almost exclusively in the not fade aways even in like the jam parts of the not fade aways and then gets to use his full set for the middle part uh there's just a lot of like little touches here and there and like I don't know it seems like they in the way that all good sets from jam bands do like it seems like they are sort of touching on a lot of themes from earlier in the set like they never go back into a full tighten up jam but you can kind of hear it i feel like in the background sort of like hovering above this whole last sequence i feel like bob is pretty straight up playing the sugar magnolia chords for certain parts of it uh i feel like phil is like teasing love light for some reason which is like crazy like it sounds like he's trying to drive them into love light but pig pen's not even there and i don't even know what they would do with love light without pig pen there at this point <laughs> There's a whole section that is cold rain and snow, like between going down the road feeling bad and the return to not fade away. Right. It's just like there's there's so much going on at once. And it's here where it really feels like this like lean, mean, four piece, Grateful Dead, four and a half piece with Keith kind of hanging on to his piano bench over at the side. But like they are really just like throwing out ideas like crazy here at the end of this set. And yeah, I don't know. I think it's like I find it thrilling in a way that the dark star just doesn't do it for me yeah it's an interesting comparison because when you listen to the dark star you definitely feel like okay this is the grateful dead trying to create a masterpiece you know like they're trying to blow minds with this and they're searching for something that is going to be this you know transformative psychedelic experience and you know we talked before about how you can hear them straining a little bit at the beginning of that jam where I think it's really cool, but it doesn't ever quite achieve liftoff. Um, and then you hear this part of the set, and I have to remind myself that they're basically playing for 20 minutes here. I mean, you could you, you could basically count this as one song, and you could count it as a 20-minute jam, but it doesn't feel like that. Like, it feels very swift, and there is a sense of effortlessness to it that... Uh, makes it maybe easy to take for granted but like when i was listening to it just how well it flows and how much it rocks like it it is like just a great performance at the end where unlike the dark star like they're not they're not straining for 
profundity, you know, they're just playing, you know, they're just having a good time. And there is a breeziness to that performance uh, that is really uh, likable and endearing. Um, Again, it's not the kind of thing where, you know, if if you're going to listen to, you know, the the dick quote about, you know, this show is going to blow your mind or it's going to change your life. It's not that kind of jam, but like it will definitely appreciate, make you appreciate how hard the dead could groove at this time. And especially when right. they only had one drummer, like when they, yeah. when, it was, when it was just Bill back there, they could really groove hard. Um, when did they start doing China cat into, I know you writer. Like when did that become, like a, a common sequence for them to play. I mean, because they weren't doing that yet, were they? Yeah, they were already sort of late sixties. Like okay. that's pretty. Because I feel like that's standard by this point. Yeah, I just feel like that became like perfected though, like around this time, like early seventies, like yeah. where they could really, no. you know, especially that middle part connecting the songs. Because it just it just reminded me, like like listening to this kind of reminded me of that, like how those two songs are connected and like how they were able to weave in and out of the, you know, the beginning of not fade away into going down the road, feeling bad and then back into not fade away, how they really got good at that. And obviously they were doing that in the sixties with like, you know, uh, like alligator into the 11 and you know, like, like, or, uh, St. St. Stephen into the 11 and all that. Like they were doing that a lot in the sixties, but that kind of jamming, uh, where it's, uh, yeah, just effort, uh, kind of segueing, segueing into songs like really well like that, and and having right. interesting jams connecting songs. Um, yeah, it's just well that like uh, connective tissue, connective tissue between China and Ryder was just getting longer and longer at this point, and you get some really. I think it got sort of to the, it's like most extended, in sort of seventy three seventy four. Right. Um, I, but yeah, I, you're exactly right. Like I the the that's where this gets really exciting is i mean the, those three minutes sort of at the end of going down the road feeling bad you know jerry always sort of plays that sort of slower melody at the end of going down the road feeling bad that sort of signals that they're heading back to not fade away but they don't jump there right away like there is still like three more minutes of like extremely open improv uh where I mean, you you brought up China Cat. I feel like Bob's playing China Cat really fast at one point over <laughs> right. that sort of like end groove over the cold rain and snow chords. Like it's just like you don't often hear the dead like throwing out that many ideas that fast. <laughs> I guess, and it's it's really cool. It's just like a sort of little mini like symphony of like reprising a lot of the themes that they had played already in that night and some things that they didn't even play. So I really like that part a lot, and I think that's. You know, Dick talked about needing a seatbelt to listen to this, and I feel like you didn't need a seatbelt to listen to the Dark Star. It kind of loped along even during the tighten up part. This part, you know, I listened to it a lot on my way home, driving home from work this week, and definitely drove a little faster than I should have when I got to the last 20 minutes of this disc. So the song they ended up playing for the encore, which is not on Dick's Picks Volume 2, is Johnny Be Good. That was cut out, and, you know... Probably for the best. I'm sure it was awesome to hear it at the time, but you know, Grateful Dead Johnny, uh, Grateful Dead Chuck Berry covers usually are not like my favorite thing to hear. Like either Johnny Be Good or uh, Around and Round. Uh, right. Usually pretty. I do think it's funny that like, unlike uh, 
you know, your standard CD, you've got like 72 minutes to work with. Right. right? And, and I think this comes out to like 57, 58 minutes total. So yeah. like yeah. they could have put like one or two songs from the first set <laughs> on the end of this. Like, but they decided not to. I find that really interesting that they were just like, nope, that's it. This set. That's that's all we're putting out. In a way, no no bonus features, no filler. I respect it because I think the idea was to create like a like an hour of music that flows really well, and it's like we if, yeah. if we put some songs at the beginning just to fill up the space on the CD, you know, is that really going to add to the experience of this album? And you know, probably not. You know, as much as it would have been nice to hear that, you know, you want to hear as much as you can. Um, you know, as flawed as this album is, I, I do respect that decision. And I think that was probably, if you're going to do an edited version, this is probably the best way to go, you know. Uh, so that that makes sense to me. And I have to say, too, you know, we have this thing on our show, we call them bathroom breaks. And we give each other one bathroom break when we listen to the album where if there's a track that we don't want to sit through, we were allowed to skip it and i mean i didn't skip anything on this album i mean <laughs> there's not that much to skip anyway but right. um you know the, the, there's you have uh some bladder problems if you had to take a bathroom uh, exactly break so during this song uh, if you if you had to pee during dick's picks to consult your physician yeah just put on a diaper or something you know it's, <laughs> it's <laughs> there's no reason you should be going to the bathroom if you're uh if you're if your bladder's that weak so but no i think it, as much as I think I would have preferred to hear like a two disc set, you know, that had more of the first set on it. If you're going to do a one disc yeah. album like this, um, you know, I think they chose wisely in, in terms of how they edited it. So I think that's fine. So I think it's fair to say that this is not going to be one of our favorite Dick's picks like ever. You know, I think when you know when we're done with this series and we look back on our favorite uh albums, this is not going to be one of them, but I think it's a it's a good show. There's some good performances on it and I would definitely recommend anyone going on re-listen and hearing the whole show cuz I think there's a lot of good music in there. Not the best Grateful Dead show, certainly not the best Dick's picks, but um, it's still 1971 dead, so you know you can't right. really go wrong. And they're like, I think to your point, they're still sort of figuring out the format. Like, what what do Dead fans want? Do they want full shows? Do they want highlights from a show? Do they just want like the best 60 minutes from a show, like presented sequentially with no filler or like, you know outside stuff brought in so you know they were they were trying things out they were throwing it at the wall and the single disc dicks picks model didn't really work but 
you know, they kind of use that, I think, in some other ways as they're, you know, in other various releases that the Grateful Dead did down the line uh, where they were like, you know, maybe it's okay to just release the good part of a show because, you know, a lot of Grateful Dead shows have really, really good parts right next to some really, really bad parts. So this was, you know, sometimes this is the, the smart solution. And again, I think, you know, we we talked about this in our first episode that not a lot of bands were doing this in the mid-90s, you know, putting out shows from their archives, you know, that weren't that weren't being massaged in the studio sonically, you know, like fairly raw live recordings. Uh, and the idea that fans would actually want to hear this stuff, I think they had to kind of prove to themselves that there were enough people that were willing to buy this stuff. Obviously, there were a lot of tape. Yeah, that there was a market for right. it. Right. Obviously, there were a lot of tape collectors out there. Um, but, you know, were people actually going to buy this stuff as opposed to just, like, trading it with other collectors? But they learned very quickly that uh, that the dead audience would pretty much buy anything. So, you know, I, uh, <laughs> so, so they got over that pretty quick. Uh and 24 years later, nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. <laughs> so let's look ahead to our next episode. We're going to be doing Dick's Picks Volume 3. And uh, it's taken from one of the most historic months in Grateful Dead history. Uh, the show is yeah. May 22nd, 1977 in Prenbrook Pines, Florida. Of course, May 77, we all know the, the Cornell show from May 8th. Uh, there are several other shows from May of 77 that are released as other Dick's Picks albums that we'll get to later on. Uh, but uh, definitely a very well-represented month uh, in the history of, of, uh, of the Grateful Dead on, on live albums. And uh, I think, I think yeah. when we dig into three, we'll, we'll find that that's probably justified. Yeah, and I think, uh, yeah, just I think this is another example of at least early on, Dick wanting to release shows that maybe people hadn't heard of rather than these sort of treasured shows that everybody already had a good tape of. So he was like, I'm not going to release Cornell. Everybody has a good tape of Cornell. So uh, let's do this random May 77 show from, wow, another place in Florida that I don't even know where Pembroke Pines is. So two out of the two out of the no. first three Dick's picks are from Florida. The... Uh, the very yeah, under-the-radar uh, home for hot dead shows, I guess. <laughs> I guess so. So we recommend that you guys check out Dick's Pigs Volume 3 ahead of our next episode. Let's make this a listening party. Check it out and uh, be prepared to hear us yap at you for uh, an hour and a half right. or so it's, about that. Steve will be prepared hey, with something better than water and coffee. <laughs> exactly. Next time, and, by the way, we and by the way, we did out jam the dead in this episode. Oh yeah, it uh, wasn't even close. We, we, oh yeah, we 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 murdered the dead. The dead again. Fifty-eight minute jam on Dick's Picks Volume Two. Rob and Steve, ninety-minute jams. Yep. Jam the hell out of this one, man. Yeah, that, I'm proud of us. That's the uh, the Rob and Steve guarantee. <laughs> Whatever the dead do, we'll talk for fifty percent longer. <laughs> all right well on that note everyone thanks again for checking out 36 from the vault we'll be back again in a couple weeks to talk about dick's picks volume three we'll see you then 
36 from the Vault is hosted by me, Stephen Hyden, and Rob Mitchum, and produced by Osiris Media. It is edited and produced by Brian Brinkman and mastered by Matt Dwyer. All music is composed by Amar Sastry, unless otherwise noted. Logo design is by Liz B. Art and Design. The executive producer of 36 from the Vault is RJB. Cobain. Of George Michael, of Otis Redding, of Amy Winehouse, of Michael Hutchins, Bob Marley. This is the story of Prince. It's a new podcast series. About how they died, why they died, and why we're still talking about them so long after. It's like nothing you've ever heard before. It's storytelling. But it's more than that, because rock stars... They tell us how we feel. They change our mood. They change the clothes we wear. The people we hang out with. The way we remember things. It's them who give us those ludicrous moments. The ones where you're... Jumping around, singing your heart out, feeling understood. And it's those moments we'll help you remember. The ones you're thinking about right now. That feeling. That feeling. It's coming soon from Crowd Network. Just search for Death of a Rockstar on your podcast app. And subscribe now. Bowie, Dylan, Marley, you've heard the names and maybe you've heard their songs, but what about the stories behind the records that made titans of music like these so universally loved and important? Join me, Josh Adam Myers, host of The 500, as each week I go through a different album from Rolling Stone Magazine's 500 Greatest Albums list from 2012 with an incredible lineup of comedians, actors, and musicians talking about how the music has impacted their lives. New episodes of The 500 come out every Wednesday. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts.